Welcome to the Bylines Network podcast, an audio complement to our growing family of regional bylines publications. This week, we're looking at the recent controversy over education funding after the Government Education Recovery saw Kevin Collins resigned after the government decided to spend just $1.4 billion on closing the longing gap among pupils, rather than the $15 billion he believed was needed. For our article of the week, we're speaking with Viv Griffiths from Sussex Bylines. Viv wrote a piece this week about protests against plan to convert a local school in Brighton to an academy. Your hosts this week are me, Alex Toll, up in York. And me, Connor Lamb, up in Newcastle. Connor, um, you are very clued in to the education system in general, and it's kind of an area of passion for you. Can you talk a little about the problems with education inequality over the last year of pandemic? The thing with the educational inequalities over the last year is that they're actually nothing new. COVID-19 has just sort of highlighted them. For example, one of the main sources of inequalities is class-based. For example, the region that I'm from has some of the highest percentages of students on free school meals. It's 36.3% compared to 15.1% of students from the Southeast. As children on free school meals tend to have parents on benefits due to their criteria, they may not have the technological resources needed in order to access blended or online learning, an issue that was referred to as digital poverty during the first lockdown. The fact that secondary school teachers are now being put in charge of assessing TCSEs and A-levels this year has resulted in parents already preparing to file lawsuits, especially in regards to A-levels, with concerns about disabilities and lost learning not being considered during the marking process. Teacher bias is also a massive concern among the disadvantaged student populations, including the working class, disabled and BMAE students who worry that teachers might give them lower grades due to lower expectations. This is enough of a problem in the Northeast as it is back when you had your typical externally marked exams, as only 16.4% of students in the Northeast achieved an A or a 7 in any subject in the 2019 exam season. Back when I think the government were nearly finished walling out the new style TCSEs. We are very much the forgotten region. Even one student transitioned back to the classroom. There has been a massive emphasis in the news and nationally in general on academically catching up the students in regards to the core subjects, including English and maths and science, which runs the risk of creating further inequalities for a variety of reasons. While I don't think anyone would argue the importance of English and maths in the curriculum, the COVID pandemic has resulted in more soft subjects, including PE and PSHC, being put on the sidelines. PE is really important as we are seeing a rise in childhood obesity fueled in part by the cost effectiveness of unhealthy processed food in comparison to fruit and vegetables. And this is coming from somebody who absolutely hated PE in secondary school. So that's saying something. 
PSAT is especially really important as this year there was meant to be a more LGBTQ inclusive sex education curriculum that was meant to be implemented this academic year. But because COVID happened, that sort of got put on the sidelines. The government also quietly cut off funding for anti-homophobic bullying awareness sessions within schools last year, which resulted in a lot of students experiencing homophobia to the point of severe mental health issues. In an era where 65% of secondary school students regularly hear homophobic comments or experienced homophobic bullying, and those students do 15% was at their GCSEs, the fact that an inclusive sex education curriculum has been sidelined is very concerning, and it could increase the attainment gap that queer students such as myself experienced. Another thing is when we discuss the emphasis on the more academic subjects, students with special educational needs, so that's anything from dyspraxia to dyslexia to autism, just any condition to ADHD, just any, con any disability that could put students at a disadvantage. They've very much been overlooked throughout the entire pandemic. The accessibility of GCSE examinations has very much been a point of contention anyway within the SEND community. And we can see this in the average special education or needs student achieving lower GCSE grades than any your typical or non-disabled counterparts. These students need a balance of academia and support in learning basic social and life skills, and that is very much being ignored in the discussion. It is often the case that students with disability will also often have comorbidity conditions that can put them at risk of severe physical complications when they get COVID, and the government completely ignored that and made no provisions for those students when they forced every child to go back to school physically, with the potential for longer school days taking place. Neurodiverse students, including those with autism and ADHD, could struggle big time with these subjects. I especially hate how the needs of special educational needs students have been ignored throughout the entire pandemic. It's like the government doesn't care about them at all, and that they're very happy to leave the inclusion departments in financial ruins which was always a problem even before the pandemic. I would know as I was in an inclusion department with dedicated members of staff that were really stressed out. Overall, I am really concerned about the lack of attention that the government is giving to the education system and the very students that need the most support, they're not getting it. We're seeing this through the non-committal approach that the government has taken only putting £1.4 billion into education recovery compared to the recommended £15 billion that was recommended by Kevin. So, yeah, so looking at what's happened with Kevin Collins, the education czar, uh, who was he really? And do we get a sense of why he was appointed to this role? Kevin was appointed as the catch-up saw dedicated to helping the government in supporting schools in dealing with the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic, which, as I covered before, has only exacerbated the issues present within the education system. He is very much well-respected. However, the government completely ignored his advice when it came to education recovery. 
this was so again his retirement and his resignation statement was pretty damning as he denounced the government's half-hearted approach to education recovery that risks failing so many students. Yeah, for sure. And this is the issue which we see has been raised, which is that sort of this £15 billion has been recommended to close the education gap, but only £1.4 has been provided. Can you talk a little bit more about what the reasoning is behind each figure and, you know, how far is £1.4 billion really going to go? The £15 billion that Kevin originally proposed was intended to be used for a variety of reasons, including 100 extra hours of teaching per pupil. The key thing is that it included subjects including sports, music and the arts. However, the vast majority of the £1.4 billion pounds like given by the actual government is going almost exclusively towards academic tutoring and additional teacher training, which is absolutely short-sighted considering the importance of PE, the importance of PSHE, the fact that the pandemic has resulted in an increase of mental health conditions amongst children. And I think it's absolutely abhorrent that the government believes that students in primary and secondary schools are only worth £50, which is essentially what that £1.4 would equal in terms of the amount that each student would get per head. When you ignore the physical, mental health and pastoral needs of students, it often ends, ironically, in less TCSE results and poorer educational outcomes, especially for working class students, disabled students and BMAE students. So yeah, so is this £1.4 billion really enough? Oh, hell no. I remember back in secondary school, well pre-pandemic, how overworked and underappreciated my teachers and SEND support staff were. They were amazing at supporting me as a disabled queer student. The pastoral team was amazing. Any instances of bullying that I did experience were stamped out. I was so fortunate in comparison to other students who didn't get that support precisely because there wasn't the funding for it, which has always been an issue. In year 11, this was highlighted massively when in year 11, the focus was purely on GCSE examinations. Even when it came to the pastoral side of it, the focus was almost always in the context of exam revision anxiety around exams. However, even that year, the, my SEND teachers and support staff went above and beyond in the pastoral support that they gave me, which is a lot more than what anyone knows, and I owe them so much for that. That wouldn't have happened if they hadn't put in that extra effort, since SEND support, pastoral support, has always been underfunded. So despite the issues inherent in the system and the fact that I come from a working class disadvantaged background, I managed to achieve an A, a 7 and a B, 6 in English language and English literature respectively, which highlights that when staff have the support and finances needed in order to help support the children holistically beyond exams, beyond the academics, their results will increase 
I have two SENG siblings at home, and I am absolutely frightened for their future. Yeah, absolutely. And it is really important that we do try to push the government to do a bit better here. So outside of Kevin's resignation and this, as you kind of say, very strongly worded statement, what is being done and what can be done by people outside of government to try to push the government to reconsider their stance on this? Teacher unions and charities are doing a lot more than what the government has been doing. They've been really stepping up to the plate. Teacher unions have supported teachers massively in standing up for their rights. Parents have spoken out about it. The fact that parents are preparing lawsuits for their A-level aged children, which I actually talk about in my most recent article, on the future of higher education, I touched on that briefly. The fact that we're starting to see parents and teachers come together in pointing out how horrible the government has been in handling this. I just hope that the pressure that we can all put on them will result in an increase in funding, in an increase in support. However, the fact that the government hasn't responded at all to the advice given by the SAR that they hired, they hired this SAR, the fact that they've completely neglected his advice. I'm not too optimistic, which is why I started up my charity School Matters UK in the first place, since I honestly don't think that the education system gets enough of the attention that it needs. So until we all step up to the plate and speak about these issues more, I don't think that anything's going to get done, but I'd love to be proven wrong. And let's hope that you are, for everyone's sake. Yeah, let's hope I'm wrong. I never thought I would say that, but please prove me wrong, government. Our article of the week this week is by Viv Griffiths of Sussex Bytelines. Viv examined the attempts to turn the local Brighton school into an academy and the broader picture of academisation across the country. So we are delighted today to be joined by Viv Griffiths. Um, Viv wrote the article for Sussex Bylines, Keeping Schools Local, Do We Need More Academies? About the protests against making a potential academy in Brighton. Viv, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. So we just kind of wanted to dig into a little bit, a bit more about why you sort of wrote the um, piece. So what sort of drew you to this story? How did you find out about it? I found out about it because I suppose I'm in touch with, you know, local education networks. Um, you know, for years I've worked as a lecturer in education locally. And so I heard about this sort of growing protest. Uh, it's been rumbling on for a couple of years now, actually. And it's sort of gathered steam more recently as the Academy Trust has been selected to take uh, the school over. Um, and also, obviously, with my background in education as a teacher and lecturer, I was really sort of concerned about the issues behind making schools an academy. Uh, so that's really what drew me to it. Absolutely. And you really, and in the piece, you really highlight these problems with academies going forward as such. Um, could you talk a little bit more about this sort of creeping academization? Um, happening throughout the country. We 
kind of do highlight some quite alarming stats about how many schools have fallen into the hands of academy trusts over the last couple of years. Well, it is, from my point of view, quite alarming how many schools are in academy trust now. I mean, it's three over three quarters of secondary schools and about uh, just over a third of primary schools. Um, I mean, maybe to just go back a bit, it's really interesting how this has developed. Because when I was, uh, I'm retired now, but when I was working as an academic, I did research kind of forerunners of academies, which were called federations. And at that time, this is going back about 10 years, I was quite positive about some of the aspects. And um, what's perhaps often forgotten is that the Labour Party really started the academy drive um, for you know, very positive reasons that they would be good for schools in deprived areas. And I researched sort of the burgeoning federation movement in Kent, uh, where I was working at the time. And there were many aspects that seemed quite positive. And I, I was actually criticized by fellow academics for not being critical enough. But as it's sort of gone on, it's taken a different turn. And to me, it's become more like a sort of privatization of the state's system um, with you know, many downsides, uh, although some academies clearly have been shown to be successful, but many have not. And I think this sort of mixed picture um, academically is, you know, not sufficient reason to sort of force schools that are going through problems to become academies. So that's one aspect is just looking at, you know, do, do pupils do better in academies? And the answer is not clear cut. That's the sort of first thing that raises questions about, you know, why should all schools become academies when many, many schools in local authorities still do exceptionally well? Yeah, for sure. And it would be really good to get some more detail about, well, if there are any trends about when do academies do well, when do they do poorly? And about this particular academy in Brighton, um, what sort of draw your attention to it that it might be a bad case of it? Um, well, I think that the evidence shows that more secondary academies do better. Um, and that actually one of the big studies that I refer to in the article showed that, you know, few primary academies, I think there's only one primary academy trust that's in the sort of top performing schools. So I think there's a difference between primary and secondary academies and the school in question is a primary school in a very deprived area of Brighton. And there's a big question mark on my part about why it should become an academy and this is something that Baroness Jenny Jones has drawn attention to I, I know um, interestingly she actually went to the school herself in the 50s so she's and she's Baroness of Moolscombe she's got a very you know close um, personal interest in the area and the school and actually if you look at the if you're looking at academic performance Moulscombe Primary is kind of average. It's not doing worse than, you know, it's certainly not doing, um, you know, there are schools in the area that have lower academic results, 
at the end of Key Stage 2, which is the end of junior school. Um, so, but what triggered the academy, what, what's known as forced academization, is that there was an inadequate Ofsted report in 2019. Now, obviously, since then, we've gone into a pandemic and Ofsted has done not face-to-face -face visits, but some kind of monitoring visits by looking at records and by talking to teachers on Zoom. And they have noted that there have been some improvements. Now, obviously, in a pandemic, you can't do a full scale. You know, schools have been closed for a long time. It's a very, very difficult time in which to show sustained improvements. So it seems to me inappropriate at this time in particular to think of forcing the school to become an academy when even Ofsted is recognizing that some improvements have been made in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and obviously the head and the teachers, their attention is going to be particularly on seeing pupils through you know, it's a very, very difficult period for schools generally. And, you know, in Molescombe, they're going to be a higher proportion of pupils who are in special needs. So, you know, in a pandemic, that's where a lot of schools emphasis has been in making sure those pupils don't kind of drop off the agenda altogether. Um, so it just seems like it, it's inappropriate at the moment and that the school should be given a chance to show after we come out of the pandemic that improvements are being made before, you know, when there's such local opposition to it, it just does not seem like a good decision to be taking at the moment. Absolutely, yes. And so you, in the article, report about this hands-off Molescombe Primary campaign, which yeah, will be very, going on. Very strong, actually, really strong. Yeah, you um, kind of said it's in the hundreds, isn't it? Well, the council ran a um, survey of parents um, the end of last year, and the 96% of parents said they didn't want the school to become an academy. Um, and, you know, there's widespread opposition from local councillors, the Greens and Labour Party, at any rate, and by the teaching unions. Um, so, you know, that the opposition is really strong. <laughs> uh, that, that's not to say that should be the be all and end all, but it's a good indicator that it's not really, um, you know, there should be further consultation at least and negotiation. And I think that's been lacking. Yes, absolutely. And so do you sort of really get a sense that there is little appetite at all for this on the ground, really, even within the teaching staff? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the, the teaching staff have been on strike at least twice um, over this. So they're, they're not, the, it's not that the parents are against, but the teachers are for, the, the teachers are against it as well. They don't think it's right for that particular community. Yeah, for sure. And then sort of looking forward, you, you do sort of mention that local Labour councillors have been getting involved with this. The, yeah. the Greens are just marginally the ruling party at the moment. The Green, mm. Green Party is against academisation anyway, yeah. as a policy nationally. And so Green councillors um, are against, and our Green MP Caroline Lucas, 
and certainly the Labour MP for uh, Kemp Town, who's Lloyd Russell Moyle, is against it. And he's sort of adamant he would help parents move to other schools if the academisation goes ahead. Uh, so, yeah, locally, there's pretty, you know, outright opposition to it from, you know, from many quarters. Yeah, so I guess on that sort of question, what really is next? Can this academisation be stopped? And if so, how, I guess? Well, that's a difficult one. I mean, I, I believe that up to three trusts who had come forward initially have, you know, previously withdrawn because of the local opposition. Um, there was quite a fuss recently when the chief executive visited the school. Um, and the moment, this is the Pioneer Trust, at the moment, the Pioneer Trust is still saying they're gonna go ahead. And there was an added sort of um, negative as far as the community was concerned that one of the Ofsted inspectors who rated the school inadequate is actually on the trust's board. Um, he's a regional director. So there was a kind of aspect of you know, internal interest there that through some added question to that particular trust. Um, so I don't know whether uh, there's any way, unless the trust withdraws, that it can be stopped. At the moment, it's still going forward despite all the, all the protests and so on. Um, so it's a question of, well, not exactly wait and see. I mean, the campaign is still really, um, you know, vehement that they don't want it to go ahead, but it's difficult to see how it can actually be stopped. One of the things you mentioned earlier that quite interested me was how actually in secondary schools, academization has improved results to a certain extent. What factors do you think play a role in that? because I remember when I left secondary school, it was academized, and I still sort of look on the website sometimes. And in that case, it's been changes to behavioral policies, added enrichment activities, stuff like that. Do you think laws play a factor in improving results? Or do you think it's something else? Well, it's difficult to say because it's not, uniform you know some secondary school academies have done really well and others haven't um but it's a sort of generally bit, bit more of a positive picture than in primary academies um i think maybe secondary schools because the age of the pupils lend themselves more to being in academies i think the thing about primary schools is that they're very rooted in the local community um, with young children, parents are more involved in primary schools. And so it's sort of easy to see how academies are not so suited to primary schools. Um, secondary schools, they've become, you know, bigger over the years, you know, local authority runs secondary schools. Um, there's more specialist schools, there's more um, maybe a more corporate feel about some local authority secondary schools. I can think of one local to me that my own children went to. Um, I don't particularly like some of the aspects of how 
even local authority secondary schools have moved. Um, but I can see why some secondary schools would work well within academies for those reasons. Um, it's difficult to pinpoint exactly without looking, sort of drilling down into individual cases, why some schools would do better. I mean, a question has been raised, um, one of the questions that's been raised in reviews of academies is that um, some academies actually um, get rid of pupils that don't fit, you know, maybe behaviorally or academically, they, because they have the freedom, you know, they have more freedom in some ways than local authority schools that they can actually, um, I'm trying to think of the right word, but it, you know, there are cases where uh, pupils have been excluded. You know, it's quite a high exclusion rate in some secondary academies. So you could say they're not catering, you know, they're not so inclusive necessarily as local authority schools. They have the freedom to be a bit less exclusive. I'm just sort of throwing that out there as a possibility, but I would need to look at individual cases to try to ascertain why some are successful or more successful. But they're not more successful than secondary schools uh, who are, which are in the local authorities. Um, but they just have a better success rate than the primary academies. Thank you so much. That's really interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, as a sort of former academic, I sort of obviously sort of really strong on having the evidence and I don't have individual evidence as to why some secondary academies do well, but ju just the evidence that I have raises a few questions in my mind. Um, but yeah, there's no doubt that some secondary academies are doing really well. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for talking to us about all of this and we'll be sure to keep on monitoring the issue going forward. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much to for speaking with us and be sure to check out her article on Sunset Bylines. So for our final section, we wanted to have a look at some of the stories which we thought weren't being covered enough in the news. Connor, what were you hoping to talk about? I know this is a few weeks old now, but the government has implemented a bill putting universities and student unions on the hook for providing opportunities for free speech to all students, staff, and guest speakers. My main concern with it is when it says a bit in Gavin Williamson's press statement thing about we, this, we will make sure that no hate speaks or cause to violence is allowed or something. It does scare me a bit how they're handling the whole free speech thing since what is being counted as hate speaks? Could I have a bunch of ableist and queerphobic slurs thrown at me and then have the pause and flinging those around say, it's okay, it's my fundamental right to say that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. You, and we, I, had, we had a bit of a look into this 
um, a couple of weeks ago. And it's even the case that I think there is nothing in the bill that stops someone from not being sort of fired or no platformed if they're an actual Holocaust denier. And it's a really bad piece of legislation. That's awful. Mm. Like, the thing is with the whole, like, almost scaremongering that Gavin Williamson and Michelle Gordon, in case you haven't been, in case you haven't guessed it yet, I'm not exactly the biggest fans of them. <laughs> no, can imagine. So it's, I thought, so honestly, I get the free speech to a certain extent has to work both ways, which I fully understand because my first article for Northeast Bylines was a pretty bitter, like, reflection on the year. Yeah. But the Ooh. fact that but the fact that the government could, in theory, allow basically Holocaust deniers, homophobic people, queerphobic people, ableist people to speak out at universities, the one place where you have people of different genders, sexualities, abilities, cultures, religions, universities are the one place where you can have that melting pot and not experience harassment or bigotry because of it. So it frightens me that that could potentially be taken out from under us. What were you hoping to talk about? So I was going to cover a story which has been mentioned quite a lot in the US, but actually less over here, which is actually quite a um, quite a hopeful story in some ways. So I'm not sure if you're aware of the oil company ExxonMobil, but actually recently a an activist shareholder group called Engine Number no. One managed to actually install two climate activists onto their board as directors. And it really shows that actually there is something being done about the climate crisis, not necessarily by these big companies, but by these activists, shareholders who are trying to achieve change. So this stakeholder only had a 0.02% stake in Exxon, but kind of managed to coordinate the other shareholders to organize this big meeting where they voted on what's been kind of described as like a sort of a green coup within the board. And so I think it's a really interesting story and one worth checking out. We'll put an article for it down in the show notes below. That does sound really interesting. I can't wait to read up more on it. Absolutely. Well, I think that's all that we had for this week. So again, thank you so much to Viv for appearing on the podcast. And be sure to check out her article on Sussex Bylines. Follow us on at Bylines Pod on social media. And thank you so much for listening. It's been a really good podcast, I think. Absolutely. One of my favourites so far. Our music was Voxel Revolution by Kevin McLeod. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Kevin.